Welcome to Conversations from Here with me, Dana Ziegler. These candid, unfettered, and unedited talks create connection and inspiration across the human story. These are the sharings of how we came to be ourselves, how we found our life's purpose, and how we made it from there to here. I speak with performers, artists, artisans, creators, innovators, entrepreneurs, and other remarkable people about what they do and how they came to do it. Also, the music you hear on this show is performed, as always, by Brad Watson. Today I speak with contemporary Namibian artist, scholar, social justice lion, and citizen of the world, Kavena Hambira. Our wide-ranging ramble begins with an historical overview of Namibia. Growing up in exile and relocating to East Germany as a youngster, the implications and significance of racial identity, time as a Fulbright scholar, being inspired by both the creative and social activism realms in the San Francisco Bay Area, embracing life as an artist, finding mentors in unexpected places, the larger global implications of the Black Lives Matter movement, and the vital importance of shining a light on history. Here's me and Kav. Hey, but I'll take you. And so, my dear friend, Kavena Hambira, how are you? I'm so glad that you could join me today. Uh, thank you so much, my dear friend, Dana Ziegler, and former colleague, might I add. Yes. Good to be with you. It's so good. And so um, you have had quite a story, um, a, a rather epic story, actually, which, which, uh, which begins in, tell me if I have this right, um, an Angolan refugee camp. Were you, were, were you born there? Yeah, well, I mean, I've never heard the word epic before <laughs> I preface my story, but uh, I'll take it. Uh, yeah, I was born in Luanda, Angola in 1984. Um, around the time the country itself was embroiled in, uh, in its own civil war. But um, its southern neighbor, uh, then a country by the name of Southwest Africa, today known as Namibia, um, was also in a, a battle, uh, an armed struggle to uh, to liberate itself from then apartheid South Africa. Uh, so uh, my parents at the time were uh, fleeing the political uh, system. Uh, they, they did not support the Bantu education system um, and other apartheid segregation, segregation laws. So uh, they fled as political exiles, um, somehow found themselves in a uh, in, in in Luanda, one one country, or in, in one, one the capital city of Angola, which is one country north of Namibia, and that's where I was born. And your dad was a journalist, is that right? Yeah. So in many ways, um, he was I would say he was a broadcast journalist, and uh, he was a photographer, photojournalist as well. Um, he uh, really started his career um, as a student mobilizer. Um, mobilizing a lot of his fellow young Namibians um, to really boycott the apartheid system. And uh, in doing so, um, he used a lot of um, uh, mediums like uh, the radio, 
uh, he used uh, print media he wrote and um, and then when he he went abroad um, he, he joined the people's liberation um, movement um, and, and and through through the people's liberation army of Namibia he um, obtained a, a scholarship to study in Tanzania um, and uh, school um, and to journalism school in Tanzania and um, and yeah, he, he returned and uh, went to the front, uh, basically as a war photographer, and he filmed a lot of the portraits of uh, Namibian soldiers on the front lines. Um, and then, uh, yeah, my mom, um, she, you didn't ask me about it, so I'm going to... Yes, that was that. my next question. Okay, I'll reserve that. On. I'll reserve that. See, I'm, I'm already jumping ahead. <laughs> um, well, since... Since since I've preempted, I guess I might as well continue here. Yes, talk about your mom. Yeah, so my mother um, was born in the rural north of Namibia, and uh, she, um, as a young village uh, girl at the time, um, she followed her elder sister into exile. Her elder sister was conscientized, and and, uh, and and she, you know, she was essentially a hero and um and her sister ended up in the uh in the southern border town of uh, of angola called uh, kasinga um and uh my my mother followed her sister to kasinga and was embroiled in what today is known as the largest massacre in namibian history the kasinga massacre of 1976 i believe um so you know she she's really uh, had to live through that trauma, and I think she's someone that has you know through her her experience has been the pillar of strength um, for many of us. So um, you know I see her as like a kind of like a central figure in my upbringing. Who was the so the perpetrators of the genocide were um, South African forces. Or what, who were they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, the the this was, uh, and and let me just be clear. Though. So the um, the Kasinga massacre wouldn't say is the was that it was this was the largest um, massacre uh, of the armed struggle, but the you know the, the largest really mass genocide. Um, of Namibian history, in Namibian history, postmodern Namibian history, happened at the turn of the 20th century. And that was the Herero and the Nama genocide that was committed by um, uh, the, the German, the Second Reich, um, which was led by the Kaiser. Um, but the perpetrators of the, uh, the Kasinga massacre was this, the, the South African uh, Defense Force at the time, uh, the apartheid government uh, at the time, um, and they, this was, this was essentially a military operation. I believe it is called Operation Reindeer. Um, and, 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 you know, from, from, from their perspective, they were clearing out, host, you know, hostile uh, terrorists from this, um, you know, war zone. And, uh, and, and, yeah, so you, you have to also, you know, I have to be fair here, and you also have to, um, you know, look at it from 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 different perspectives, um, you know. But I, I think the the loss of life 
for me is, is, is and for most Namibians uh, that view Kasinga as an emotive issue, uh, the loss of life is what um, is sacrosanct. Um, even even if, if it's if it's one life that has been lost, the value of one life is infinite. Um, and you know, if you look at who were the casualties, um, it was women, uh, it was children, it wasn't just soldiers. Um, so you know, this is where you know this is why for some of us it's not a bone of contention. It's kind of clear what happened. Mm -hmm. And we should say also that it was, was it in the later uh, 1800s where the Germans had colonized mm -hmm. the area and then they, so it was kind of what, what was to become Namibia was under German occupation essentially. And then later on it was somehow ended up being under South African rule at some point. I'm not entirely clear about where that transition was. And it was just, both of them were horrendous <laughs> for the, the people who lived there natively. Um, yeah, so it's important to share with your audience, your audience some context. Um, so I, I know it, we kind of went straight into it, right? That straight <laughs> into the meat and potatoes of the dish. Um, but you have to understand the history of Namibia uh, before we can really flush out some of these uh, periods of Namibian history. And, oh, in Namibian history, rather. But uh, it really, you know, the story doesn't start, sorry, Namibia doesn't start in the 1800s when the, col the colonial masters, the Germans, arrived on the shores of Namibia, right, in 1884. Um, you know, Namibia as a country is multicultural. It's very diverse. And um, there are over 10 different ethnic groups in Namibia. And historically, Africans have always been seen in many ways to be nomadic. And so, you know, they followed the pasture, they followed the rains. And modern day Namibia, you find some of these ethnic groups have historically been pasturists. Some of them um, have uh, built their societies on, uh, on agrarian methods. Um, so they, they, they planted seasonal grains and that sustains them through the year uh, because they could store those grains. But then you also have the indigenous groups, the real indigenous groups that have occupied that part of the world since really the turn of civilization. I mean, this is, we're talking about this, especially the San, the Khoi communities. I mean, in some instances, you know, I, I, I cringe when I hear the word Bushman, right? Because yeah. that's just, you know, it's, it's, it's it, I don't want to use it. I don't want to use the term politically correct because that even now that's such a loaded term, right? But it, it's in the same vein if you refer to someone who has a background, who has an Inuit background as an Eskimo, right? It's, it's still, it's still, it's still offensive. Um, and so the San community, these these indigenous tribes, in many ways genetically, are considered amongst the oldest genes, have among the oldest genes 
And this this is the part of this is Namibia. This is where you know this is the part of the world that they come from. This is the you know countries like Namibia, Botswana, South Africa, um, and so historically. The, the, the other ethnic groups have come from the places like the Great Lakes, and you know, which is like modern day, modern day Uganda, um, those countries around uh, that part of the lake today is Lake Victoria. Um, those tribes like the Awambo and the Herero, they all migrated from the Great Lakes to this part of Southern Africa. This is where they found themselves, and they had built societies that um, really had their own hierarchies, their own structures, uh, their own, their own uh, rituals, their, their own culture, their own, I mean, you had their own customs and practices existing in these parts of Southern Africa for, for hundreds of years, for centuries. And, in, it was only around 1884 when um, you found the Germans coming to Southern Africa, coming to Namibia um, under the auspices of Lebensraum. Um, and around that time, you know, Namibia was presented as an alternative colony to the you know, the Germans were going to the, the West. Um, you know, here you could get a piece of farmland and you could, uh, you know, uh, live off the land and work the land and you know, they'll set you up with cattle. Um, and uh, you can, uh, you know, build a functional, um, you know, a functional, be part of a, a functional society. And the Dutch were doing in South Africa. Exactly what the Dutch did in South Africa. Wars. Exactly. Um, and that's and that's typically what happened up until the First World War, when the Germany lost all of its colonies. And under the, the, the League of Nations, just the pre really the precursor to the United Nations, Namibia was declared a sea mandate. So we essentially became part of the British the Commonwealth. And uh, but we were under the governorship of the largest British colony in South in Africa at the time, which is South Africa, which was South Africa. And um, what South Africa did was essentially incorporate us as as, uh, as another province. And uh, you know, especially realizing the immense mineral wealth um, uh, of Namibia uh, along the Atlantic seaboard. Um, with the Benguela current that brings up all the rich phytoplankton. Uh, so it's very, very rich uh, fishing waters. Um, and, and, and South Africa wanted a piece of that. So and what happened um, over a period of time, of course, a lot of the laws and legislation that was promulgated in South Africa was also uh, implemented in Namibia. So uh, uh, that, 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 that's, that's when a series of laws, of segregation laws was passed, i.e., as we know, apartheid. Um, and that's really what sparked the armed struggle uh, that uh, led to the, uh, the, the eventual uh, settlement. Uh, uh, agree it, was, it was an agreement, essentially, um, that brought about independence. It was a negotiated settlement that brought about independence.
and and Namibia became officially its own nation in 1990. Yes, and you, I, I, I really appreciate it when people do research before okay. like they have these conversations. <laughs> Even the way you pronounce Namibia, I appreciate. <laughs> you well, really practiced. And um, so, and for you, um, you were speaking of Germany. You ended up for a time. What was it a couple of years that you you actually were sent for your own safety, evidently, during this this tumultuous civil war, you were sent to was it East Germany, you spent some time as a little yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, around the time I, that's correct, I spent time in, in East Germany, I, I uh, ended up leaving uh, uh, Luanda uh, when I was around three, three and a half years old. Um, Essentially, what um, had happened is that I, I, I was lucky enough, really lucky enough, to uh, make it into a program, um, and it was really brought about by international solidarity. You so remember a lot of these uh, uh, these movements around Southern Africa at the time were uh, quote-unquote socialist movements. Um, they were you know, aligned to a lot of uh, the socialist uh, uh, countries that had, and the democratic socialist countries that had uh, implemented a level of, uh, of socialism in their governments. So um, at the time you had the Scandinavians that were supporting the movement by you know, training medical staff, nurses and doctors. Um, of course you had the, uh, the Russians and the Chinese who supported the military wing of the movement. Um, and and in, this, in, in my instance, the East Germans, what they did was um, they had a program that literally airlifted children in these quote-unquote war zones, um, especially children who were separated from their parents, um, and took them to Germany, housed them in what they called Kinderheims, which basically was um, really a, a, a youth hostel or an orphanage. Um, and you'd, you'd, you'd literally, the idea was you'd be in a space with other Namibian children cared for by local surrogate families, essentially. And at the time that Namibia gained its independence, we'd go back when the country was free. And I happened to be one of those kids that uh, ended up uh, in the in the DDR, uh, East Germany. And how old were you when you were sent? I was about three and a half years old. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you were there for how long? A couple of years. And I I left in nineteen ninety end of nineteen ninety. I always thought it was ninety one, but uh, yeah, end of nineteen ninety I left, uh, and um, and yeah, just after Namibia gained in Namibia gained independence in in March in 1990. So when I, I was about, what I was about, like six when I got so back. How did you feel being sent to Europe? I mean, what a, as such a, a little one, mm. was it distressing? Mm. Or what, what was Man, it? you know, it's interesting you, you ask that question. I, I, I can't say it was distressing because I really have just these really happy memories. And it was probably the first time I can think, even 
in Angola had happy memories. Let me not make it seem like it was all treacherous. Yeah. Uh, uh, but this is really the first time as a child I remember I could play without fear of having a bomb falling over your head, right? Like without being surrounded by barbed wire, without living in a shipping container, you know? Um, and I know like I have physical scars, like you know, a lot of people would comment when they meet me for the first time, I have like this Harry Potter-esque scar on my mm. middle of my forehead. Now that, that's, a, that's an injury I incurred in Angola. And no, like no one knew, I just like stepped out of, just stepped out of the yard, came back with a, a face full of dry blood and a gorging wound my forehead same thing with you know this kind of very distinct calf feature this dimple it's a scar you see there's actual like an actual scar yeah i can see right so this idea that again like i was in an unsafe environment i, I you know again i just was a, just a kid being a kid roaming out of my immediate environment and then returning with a rusty nail through my cheek right like and in Germany, I never had to feel unsafe. Um, we ate four meals a day, mm -hmm. showered. They had a showering twice. You know, mind you, some kids came with lice in their hair. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, this is, you're coming from a very different environment. So, you know, it's like you're, it's like you're in heaven for me. I mean, I remember playing in snow for the first time. That so they nice. were sweet to you? The, the people who took care of you there? Remember, remember a lot of these, these were working class East Germans that overnight were just summoned into a town hall and said, listen, our village in a month is expecting a hundred kids from Africa our comrades are going to send us a hundred kids from Africa from, and we have a responsibility to care for these children. So some people dedicated their lives. Some, if, so if you were a cook at a restaurant, you now volunteered or you now worked at the kitchen in the hostels. If you were a nurse in a clinic, you now help run the, the nurse pantry at the, and, and, and I mean, this place was huge. It was like, it's a castle. Essentially, it was a medieval castle. Uh -huh. And, you know, there were, there were tens of rooms um, that housed, you know, 100 kids. And over a period of 10 years, there were about 700 kids that went through this program. And there were multiple villages. So these people, we became part of their lives. We became part of their communities. Mm -hmm. To some degree, we were considered their children. Some of them considered us their children. And, and I'll say it because in 2011, I went back to Germany, to East Germany for the first time. And I met some of these folks who had run the program. And they said, when the kids left, 
it was so abrupt that some of them decided to walk in to their homes, shut their doors and windows and never return. Mm. They became completely reclusive. And it's just this sense of loss. Remember some kids came in, the, in, in, in <laughs> as, as toddlers and they left as teenagers, mm-hmm. right? Um, they spent their adolescence growing up. I mean, I was there for what, two and a half, three years. All these kids were there for 10 years. Mm. And just overnight, you just had to say goodbye. So it was difficult for a lot of those folks as much as it was for the kids. Mm-hmm. And then you knew um, from the get-go before you were sent to Germany, you knew that you would see your parents again. You would be reunited with them. That was the, the idea. So... And then you finally were, but then you reunited in Namibia, right? Where you had not yet been because you were in Angola, then in East Germany, and then in Namibia. And what was that like? Another huge culture clash. Yeah, you know, so um, so my mom, one of the reasons why I was separated from my mom was because she had received a scholarship at the time to uh, pursue um, uh, studies in the UK, in London, Um, but it was conditional. And it was, you know, this idea that she couldn't bring a a dependent along. Mm -hmm. So I, but she also understood this would also make me eligible for this program, right? So initially, so it was also, uh, I wouldn't say strategic, but she understood what the ramifications would mean. It would also help, in a way, help me get into a better situation. Yes, but also um, really hard for her, I can imagine. But exactly, exactly. So this is, and this is essentially the, the, the issue is this also like make, like today you have to also like question like how, you know, your life has shaped up and, you know, the way you question certain things, the way you behave under certain circumstances like I you know can choke it out to like issues around abandonment and I think these are some of like the especially like now that I'm older and I'm starting to explore this stuff they're like in therapy like you understand how these things have shaped you but also like I'm always lucky to say this because like I have such a great relationship with my mother like we can speak about these things and and we've really over the years like it really helped it's really healed around a lot of this like trauma like from separation Uh, but you know she was very proactive in making sure that I never really lost this connection to her so even when she was in London she had and it was really difficult to travel but she made it happen and she traveled to East Germany in one instance and she came to visit me and I remember she had actually like taken me out of this uh, Kinderheim for a couple of days that she had and just you know, like rented a place in this little German city got me a little suit we did a you know, <laughs> photo shoot and we just like hung out and and she said like the first couple of days I was just like crying I just couldn't like fathom being around her and there was like this idea that I remember even like being fearful that 
like I'm being separated once again. Mm. Like I'm being ta- like I'm like I'm being taken away from like this sense of safety. Mm. Um, and like associating her, like the last time I was in such like a dire situation, like I was just like with my mom in a you know essentially in a war zone, right, in a crisis zone. Um, but like. I also got to understand like how difficult it was for her and you know just looking at her child reject her in that way mm. right like and how she had to also deal with that feeling around rejection and um and I think the the biggest part about that experience was uh you know I think it made the connection to my mother even more stronger because you know, she kind of pulled planets to the side to see me, right, in East Germany. And when I came back to Namibia, I had already uh, developed some relationship with her. So I knew I was safe. So when I met her, so when I gave, it was meeting my father for the first time, that was mm-hmm. the most difficult Um and you know he was a bit of a traditionalist, so you know he he couldn't stand the fact that you know his child only spoke German or <laughs> yeah. you know just like only ate sauerkraut and kartoffel or that. I'm kidding. I loved umpa music. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm trying to think of every German trope I know. Like so, <laughs> I, 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 I love, love Germany. Um, <laughs> No, I no, I uh, no. It, it was just meeting my dad. It was actually really, really interesting. So that must have taken some time then to, re- well, reorienting, reacquainting yourself with mm-hmm. Namibia, and then also your dad meeting him for the first time, and then establishing that relationship and reconnecting again with your mom. Um, and then you were you went to school, of course, in Namibia and. Um, and, and so do you feel like you were finally able to, uh, to, uh, to adjust that life and, and have it be reasonably stable and, and safe? Yeah, I think it was just, it was, you know, when I moved back to Namibia, it was difficult in the beginning because there was not just a language barrier, but there was also a cultural barrier. And although even while we're in the DDR, they did a pretty good job at trying to maintain our identity to Namibia. Mm -hmm. So within our school curriculum, even as kindergartners, uh, up until the older kids, there was a component that involved like a subject on Namibia Namibian culture. There's always cultural festivities to commemorate specific mm-hmm. days. So they maintained, that's very interesting, that they maintained the cultural identity of Namibia. They didn't try to turn you into little Germans. <laughs> oh, I mean, a, a big part of it, a big part of it was trying to actually prepare us for the return. Ah, okay. A big yeah. part of it was, you know, this idea that we were really seen as a special case study when I say special case study, I really mean like the, they, they saw the DDR children, the kids in the DDR as uh, 
potential catalysts of change in a new independent Namibia. Um, so we went through the pioneer system at some point, you know, this really uh, very kind of just, like, I don't, I don't want to feel like, say like we were indoctrinated, mm-hmm. but there was a sense of nationalism that was attached to our upbringing. You, you mm-hmm. can't separate that. Like there's, you know, this idea that you are born to serve your country. And, and that, you know, those values and that set of values is something I carried over and into my later years. Um, but, you know, just to keep to the time period of your question, um, as a kid, I, I found what was challenging really was getting to know my own culture, um, shedding almost this German identity. <laughs> and it's, it's, it was still a part of me. Sure. And I was still, yeah, in many ways, I'm not really divorced. This is just a, another aspect of my growth, but. Das ist gut, yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> you feel me? Um, but I had to also acquire uh, my, my, my ancestral, you know, knowledge. I had to speak my, the language of my mother and the language of my father. And then, um, so then you went to school in Namibia Mm -hmm. and then, um, and so was it, was it all, uh, and Namibia also has English as the second language. Is that right? Actually, Namibia, English is the official language. The first language. Yeah. Okay. It's the official language of Namibia. And, uh, but yeah, we have about 10 different languages that we speak in Namibia. Because there's the tribal languages, and mm-hmm. then there's also there's also um, English, and then and then Afrikaans as well, right? Is kind of a just because of the history, there's a lot of people who speak it probably. That's right. That's right. Uh, so Afrikaans is a derivative of Dutch, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's spoken exclusively in Southern Africa. So by m- many standards it's an african language mm-hmm. right uh, i remember when i was still in high school there was this huge debate around like what who like who is african what it means to be african um, who can claim africanness you know to be african and i think the you know the language was loaded because it was the language that a lot of my parents and their generation were fighting against. It was considered, it was considered a tool that was used to oppress. Mm -hmm. The language Uh, of the oppressor. Correct. You know, so, you know, even in, if, if you travel to some parts of Southern Africa, you will find many that speak it, uh, speak Afrikaans, Mm -hmm. but, um, in some instances, you also have to remember that there are communities that are not white, mm-hmm. but um, they use Afrikaans as their as an official language. As they, that's their mother tongue. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the coloured community in in 
in, in uh, South Africa and Namibia. Uh, Namibia, or you could also include the Bastard community. And, and by, you know, by, by, the, by using the term colored, I, I know in the US, it's, that's also another loaded term. Um, but in, uh, in Southern Africa, that, uh, the term is openly used to describe a group of, a subgroup of, uh, ethnic group of, of, of Southern African, South Af Southern Africans. Um, and, you know, they exist primarily in, in, uh, in South Africa and in Namibia, um, but the colored community uh, speaks Afrikaans as a, as a, as an official language. So, you know, context is important. Um, and, you know, I, I wouldn't want to just blanket because I know it's one thing in the U.S., you know, we're so far removed. Sometimes Africa, you know, we tend to see it as one country. Um, but, you know, with the use of language wasn't always oppressive. That's what I think that's really what I'm trying to say. Right. Yeah. Of, of that language. And then you, uh, you ended up getting a Fulbright scholarship mm -hmm. and then traveling. Tell me a little bit about that, your travels. Oh man, yeah. There's so much. See, this is what I meant by epic. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm really honored you think I have an epic life story. For me, it's just so normal. Uh, <laughs> so normal, like so normal. Um, but I, you know, I, and this is also to answer your previous question. To be fair, I didn't answer your previous question about school, but um, I, I think like the big part of my experience growing up was, you know, in Southern Africa, in Namibia, was my education. And, you know, I, and I didn't go necessarily to um, a very exclusive school, but I had, I had access to some quality education, a quality public school um, system. And I'm always cautious because I don't also want to misrepresent not just myself, but you know, but but Namibia, in that everyone had access to that type of education. Because the reality is not most. Like, I really consider myself privileged to have gone to school in Vintuk East, um, and even even if it was a public school, you know, we had a computer lab, we had swimming pool, we had basketball, you know, we had a court, whatever. We had a football field, rugby field, and we had you know extramural tennis court. Mm -hmm a track like these facilities are not available to the majority of students growing up in Namibia. But you know, there was enough to propel me um, to university. I had at that point wanted to explore some of my own creative interests. But you know Namibia is a is a post conflict country. They really prioritize material science over the arts and over creativity. So you know, the idea that you wanted to pursue the arts was considered a taboo. Because mm, they're thinking, we want to be pragmatic here and we right. want to educate you in a nuts and bolts way to prepare you for success in the world. Right, right. And, and you know, and my, and, you know, my parents, you know, was really all about securing upward mobility. We just want to make sure that you can do something that can take you into a healthy direction in your life and you're not going to struggle to make ends meet and you're going to be able to 
support yourself without having to support you. <laughs> uh, and, um, and that's how I ended up getting into um, the human resource conflict resolution space. Um, but I always still had this yearning to pursue the arts. And um, in 2011, 2012, uh, I had received a Fulbright, quite right, to, um, to do some postgraduate here. And that's how I got to the Bay Area first time. And, you know, it was just such a transformative period because I was exposed to more than just the academic side of things. I, um, you know, I met a, a group of artists, photographers and musicians and, and um, fine artists, and graffiti artists. And through that experience, I was really exposed to the arts and I you know, was encouraged to pick up a camera and I got my first camera and I just, I just shot everything. You know how it is when you first get a camera and you just shoot everything all the time. I was just filming. And then, you know, when they had events, uh, we usually put up some art shows. I remember we did our first, uh, they did a show at Hyde Street Studios, which uh, was a really an institution in San Francisco at one point that all the greats had recorded there, Joplin, Hendrix, Tupac, you know, at least digital underground when, when there was digital underground. And, and so I remember at that, that point, I had really felt like this was a moment where I could look back and try something, just immerse myself in something that I've, I really just like suppressed. Mm -hmm. And um, and I also just I found myself in spaces where I was being perceived differently. Um, you know, this idea that I was black really changed when I opened my mouth. Like, I was like, wait, wait, what, 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 what? And uh, so I I started to also understand my vantage point as an as an African man living in the diaspora, I had just like a really unique vantage point. And I, I liked that place. I really enjoyed telling stories from that place. Um, but then of course I was still a Fulbright and I, you know, and I, and I was determined to, um, to live up to that, uh, that goal that I set for myself. And I, you know, when I finished, I stayed in San Francisco and of course, I ended up at, at Granite uh, yes. in, the, in the financial district in San Francisco. And that's how we met. Yes. We yes. became co-workers. Uh -huh. um, and, uh, and that was such an interesting time too, because, um, you know, I also, it was really the first time that I was earning an income that allowed me to fund my projects, you know, to fund a lot of my creative work. Um, and so I was traveling uh, around the U.S., um, working with a lot of the um, the social justice organizations in the Bay Area. Specifically, well, let me let me say a lot. But I'll, I'll, you know, I was organizing specifically with the Love Not Blood campaign mm -hmm. uh, here in the Bay Area, um, and and yeah, it was such a important time. I, I used the word transformative earlier because it just shifted the way I viewed you know blackness. 
in the US and uh, and uh, and I you know juxtaposed to my my version of blackness uh, I know this you know a bit like I, I get it like most Americans look at black as black people that's just like a monolith but like you know as you know there are many shades of black absolutely there are multiple black experiences and um and this is really what drew me to this point that i find myself now i i wanted to explore it further and uh, and i was determined to um return to pursue my mfa um in art practice specifically focused on film and uh that's where that's that's what brought me back to the it, it's interesting that your the social justice movement in combination with your creative pursuits and so it sounds like it was just such this flowering that happened when you hit san francisco it just opened up a whole all these worlds to you and gave you and like you said working at granite gave you the, uh, the financial freedom also to be able to fund mm -hmm. your projects and whatnot. And then, and this was a, another thing that I wanted to um, get into, well, a couple of different things. One is, um, so you ended up enrolling at the San Francisco Art Institute. Right. And then um, are they still, because I know that you were pursuing and then they were going to close down and then what happened with that? What are you doing now? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh man. So that's <laughs> that's been such an interesting story. Um, so I I did I I think around the time I I was leaving Namibia about a year ago. I was really considering a uh, a school that had a background in not just really social justice but bay area activism is really close to the radical ideas uh, of art that i you know i envisage and uh, we share a lot of values um i or i share a lot of values with that institution they existed before me um and i thought about sfai for a while but it wasn't until i really went to the campus and then took it all in and i understood look this is you know i didn't even know at the time that they were the oldest liberal art school on the west coast mm -hmm. but you know really, really i i found in the institute a place where i could incubate my ideas mm. and i enrolled in january um and by spring break they told us that uh, because of the virus um, they're going to be shutting their doors and i after a few months you know i i had to consider moving to another program um we we, we found out that they were able to secure some short gap funding to keep the school afloat for Good. Uh, for the unforeseeable future, and um, and but unfortunately, at that point, I had already um, I had already transferred um, to the program mm -hmm. at uh, at Berkeley. So yeah, um, yeah. yeah, yes. So so yeah, I but I I you know I remain I remain part of um, their reimagined committee. I'm really excited to support the reconstruction 
of the Institute. Um, I think right now the U.S. is going itself is going through a reconstruction of its own uh, identity as a country, and you're finding that institutions are responding to the climate. Um, so, you know, the folks, the folks uh, at SFAI, you know, they they themselves are faced with these questions and they've assembled a, a, a strong group of people to really uh, have uh, some conversation, some dialogue around, you know, potential ways that we could you know, help reconstruct the Institute to meet the ideals um, of its mission statement. Mm -hmm. And then tell me about um, your work with Black Lives Matter and where that's going now, where you see it mm -hmm. projecting forward into the future uh, <laughs> as we reconstruct this country, hopefully. Um, I, I see the conversation going global. Um, I think right now you're finding that there's still so much that has to be done. It's really sparked a conversation beyond the borders of this country. And I, you know, in many ways, I see myself as a conduit. I see myself as a conduit um, between um, the U.S. and um, and uh, and in Southern Africa, and I want to be able to uh, really challenge dominant narratives here about Africa <laughs> in the same way as I want to challenge dominant narratives about the African American community, the Black community here um, on the continent. Because um, in many ways, you know, many would argue that there is this wedge that exists in, on some levels. Um, between um, yeah, our black communities, uh, not just on the continent, but here in the diaspora. And some would argue further that, you know, it's, it's, it's deliberate, it's a, that wage has been placed there deliberately. Um, and if you look at the way blackness, it doesn't matter where you are around the world, um, it's this idea that blackness is, is always at the bottom of the totem pole and black women in particular are the most marginalized in that uh, subset. Um, so we have to just be clear that um, when we talk about Black Lives Matter, it's not, we're not just talking about the slogan, you know, we're not, we're not, and I, you know, I say this, um, I say this with, you know, with the, you know, with, with the utmost, um, with utmost uh, respect when I say this, um, but we don't want to use the word in a nebulous way. Like it's just not, a, it's no longer, we can't just make it a perfunct, we can't use it in a perfunctory way. It's not a nebulous statement to us. When we say Black Lives Matter, we actually really, like we actually mean like, like Black life, like, like Black life actually matters. And so, it, I, so in, for me, I really just see this as an extension of the work I've been doing all along. It's not really different. I'm not, I mean, I've been working in civil society. Before I, I was doing this, I was working in civil society and living, I was working, I guess here, it, you know, the, here it's a, not, the U.S. is a nonprofit space, but you know, it's 
it's different and you know because it's also about power right these power dynamics looking at you know who's funding a lot of these programs right and um i i just realized that i was still although I, all, all the work that we're doing was having a positive impact and i use the word positive loosely but um it, it was not adver it wasn't adversely affected and it impacting people's lives and it was really uplifting you know people out of situations that they may have been in before they had access to that information or that space that we created to to upscale them upskill them and you know while i was in, in namibia i spent a lot of time in the field traveling across rural villages and 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 you're right you know when you were seeing me traveling across the country and across the continent, it was also with my work in civil society. Um, it was you know so we were also engaging policymakers on a regional level uh, to determine how um, we can all pull in the same direction, right? So I I I spent an immense amount of time. I spent almost three and a half four years through the Namibian Institute of Democracy really dedicating my life without many instances of paycheck. And not, not that makes me necessarily special, but again, like I like to think of them as like my Peace Corps years. I really did give my time to serve the people of my country um, in the capacity and with the means that I had. Um, and that's what we were really seeing when I was traveling around um, and I really found during that time that my skills, my experience, my insight, a lot of that would better be placed, could be better leveraged um, as an artist. Mm -hmm. And 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 and. And that's why, you know, this wasn't just about going to any old film program. Uh, this is, you know, this was about really understanding my role um, a, as an artist, how I needed to be clear about what my intentions were when I pursue this. You know, I, it wasn't just about, job security because i you know i feel like i've moved beyond that and you, you know i think you, you and i know well enough what a good corporate paycheck means mm -hmm. but you know at, at some point you move beyond that you get to a point where you realize that that's probably not the most important thing that you should be focusing on and i i, I think at this stage i am rolling the dice i kind of i had to muster up the courage to pursue this against the onslaught of family and friends who, you know, have begged me not to <laughs> pursue the arts, you know, this fear that you would be a starving artist, right? It's like, it's a real fear. Um, but, you know, this is, this, this is important to me. Well, here's the other thing, Kev, is that you can be a starving um, office manager. You can be a star, you know what I mean? Like, the, the term starving artist, this idea that somehow it's risky to pursue a creative endeavor 
actually these days it's just as risky to follow the practical model because i'll tell you something um you know i have been looking for conventional jobs for quite a long time in the last year nothing so i i think that the the safe choice is is not any more safe than say uh pursuing a creative endeavor in fact, I would argue that the creative endeavor might actually lead you to much better things, certainly more interesting things, and probably will open all kinds of doors because you are doing what you love to do. I appreciate that you said that. I, I really do. Um, because at the core, I really do see myself as a storyteller. And I view film and video really as a vehicle for social change. Um, and, and I don't necessarily think my work has to live within the cinema, right? Um, at the, at the, I mean, at the core of it, really, I'm a multidisciplinary. Uh, I'm, I'm really, I'm a contemporary Namibian artist. That's really what it is. And, and, and my practice moves through various forms. You know, I write um, a nonfiction writer. I really enjoy nonfiction writing. I, uh, you know, I'm looking at site-specific installation work. So... You could have um, multiple screen installation with various imagery speaking in conversation with each other, speaking against each other. Um, I, I'm exploring these ideas in a safe environment. This is why I came to art school. This is why I decided to come and pursue an MFA. Uh, despite the value of MFAs, again, in a society that doesn't value creativity, the arts, I understand that fear. But, you know, I do recognize in many ways, especially if I speak about my own experience with my own family and friends, that I just recognize it as a projection of their own, their own uh, fears and their own uh, struggles. And I think that's okay because they just want the best for you. I've, I, you know, I used to be angry when I was young. I used to be like get so angry and riled up, like I want to be an artist, and you know, you're not letting me be an artist, you know. But you know, like people don't want you to starve at the same time, right? They don't want you to not be able to pay for healthcare, <laughs> like you know, they don't want you to be able to, you know. I, I get that, I get that. Um, but you, you have to be true your your own purpose or your own destiny I suppose you do and also um, things are not mutually exclusive too that's the other thing that that we need to remember is that um, you know yes one has to pay the bills but one can also pursue one's creative uh, pursuits and right. so it's not like it's not an either or and I think we it's it's we get that projected upon us a lot about it's either this or it's that. No, it, life is an and. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I learned that, I learned that I think from my dad. Um, and, you know, he, as a, as a photojournalist, I, I always grew up with a camera around me. So, and, and let me just say, by the way, because I, I just hate to misrepresent myself, you know, I, especially when I moved back to Namibia, like I had a relatively normal life. I really like, I'm, 
I'm really lucky. I like to think of myself as like one of the lucky ones. Because even, you know, even coming back from the DDR, you know, there were kids that came back from East Germany and they never had their parents pick them up at the airport. Like they never had their parents, period. They were killed in the war or they, um, they just disappeared in exile. Um, and I like to think having both of my folks being around them, observing and trying to model a lot of their behavior gave me the freedom to really explore and explore my creative work. And I'm really free. I'm free because I'm not inhibited by some insecurity or I, I don't think it's weird. It's like there's nothing weird about a camera for me. Like I, it's so normal. It's been normalized. But what I also think it did was, you know, like, cause I never really knew my dad's background because when I came to Namibia, he passed away around my 14th birthday. And so it was only recently when we celebrated the 20th anniversary of his passing that I found, about, found out about his, his history. And there was a book that was released in Namibia that talked about a journalist's experience uh, traveling outside of Namibia and um, essentially being captured as a prisoner of war. And my dad was literally the right hand sidekick of this protagonist in the story, right? And um, the author of this uh, book, Weaver, um, uh, who I had known, uh, what really inspired me because I saw the power of narratives and how it challenged dominant narratives that completely swathed over and completely erased some of this history, even if it's dark and difficult. I think facing it really helped me come to terms with a lot of the angst that had been almost unexplored. Mm -hmm. And I remember going on a, almost like a fishing expedition after reading this book, trying to do more research about some other topics I had read. And I found this letter, I, my dad's house, um, his ex, his ex-wife, um, or his widow, was a widow or widower. Um, so she, she, yeah, so, so she gave me access to some of his old records and I had found this old resume and the cover letter that went with this resume. And when I read this cover letter, there was a small paragraph at the very end, literally three or four sentences. And I mean, I paraphrase now, but he talked about how he had become this photojournalist and how at the very end said that he used and wants to continue using the pen and the camera to tell or to do his work. 
That shit blew my mind. It completely blew me away. And I read that thinking, wait, this is in my DNA. I mean, he, he penned this 30 years ago. I mean, I, I have to check the date on that, but it just blew my mind. I just, it's almost like a penny dropped. And I thought, I gotta, I gotta do this. This is, this is, I've always, I've always produced this type of work. I mean, you followed me long enough on Instagram yeah. and you understand. Um, and so, you know, I've always produced this type of work. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just because of these bullshit societal systems that have completely forced you want to suppress these ideas that you can pursue a career in these spaces, especially as a black man. As black people, we don't, we're not encouraged to pursue these things because specifically because you're black. It's like, it's not just hard. It's, this stuff. This shit is hard for white people. What, the, <laughs> what are they gonna do for your black ass? <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh. I I also think of uh, speaking of of words. I think of your one of your great mentors and friends, Mario Dufizzi, your oh. your your Italian South African pal who has wow. left us sadly. But wow. uh, tell me a little bit about your relationship with Mario. Ooh. Hey. This was one of the one of the the great teachers, you know, and I think that this is a great moment to reflect on Mario's life. It's really such a good moment to reflect on Mario's life. And he was somebody that I looked up to immensely. Um, I had met him many years ago while I was work, working in Namibia. Uh, I was actually, I met him on a business trip. I was, um, at the time, I uh, was in a conflict resolution role in the, for the largest privately owned group of companies in Namibia at the time. And they also owned a hotel chain. Um, they licensed an international hotel chain. I, of course, can't mention their names, but... Excuse me, oh, I just burped, that's so nasty. This is live, right? Oh, this is not live, right? <laughs> okay. Um, and he, I happened to catch a lift with the general manager of this chain um, to conclude our business um, in this really remote uh, lodge, which is a, a lodge, it's in a, kind of like a five-star hotel in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. In, uh, uh, is this the Atosha salt pan? It's 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 it's, in, it's actually in Atosha. Yeah, I was trying. See now, so now now whoever whoever knows this company is probably gonna guess which lot. It doesn't matter. <laughs> sorry, sorry. But but yeah, it was it was in the, it was actually in Atosha. It was in the, in the Atosha pan, the beautiful Atosha pan, and we happened to hitch a lift together, and uh, in the car happened to be this critic from South African Airways. And uh, he was the editor of their in-flight magazine. And he was going to review this hotel. So um, this was Mario. This was my introduction to Mario. 
And from the drive up, up until dinner that night, we, we just we, we couldn't stop talking. And he was talking about everything from his upbring, upbringing in, uh, in Durban and Durban, South Africa, and uh, um, his work, um, uh, anti-apartheid work uh, for the truth and uh, reconciliation commission, uh, his branding work. You know, he was a hardcore copy editor, copywriter as well. He was, you know, <sighs> coffee drinking, advertising junkie, right? And uh, you know that hard drinking, hard living, fast life of Johannesburg. And hard I, cooking as well. Hard cooking, right? He was a uh, great cook. <laughs> great cook, and, um, and I was just fascinated by this. Uh, seemingly innocuous white man with a uh, white African with an Italian last name. And, um, and I got to understand his history as a, his parents were, uh, his father was a, a prisoner of war in Abyssinia. You know, he was uh, in Mussolini's army and um, got captured and sent to uh, a detention center in Durban, South Africa. And that's, um, and that's how uh, uh, Mario's father ended up in South Africa, and that's where he was born. And anyhow, uh, he ended up, of course, developing a strong, uh, open relationship with him as a, you know, just you know, he as a mentor, he he reached out to me more around my creative work, around my writing. And, you know, I'd send him a lot of the stuff that I was writing. He'd edit it for me. He would read it back to me. And, um, you know, he, he would, you know, share his, um, his, you know, about his life, with his, you know, his kids and his wife. And, um, you know, I really got a sense that this was somebody that uh, was special. And when he sent me his books, um, one was his, um, his first um his first book was uh, titled uh, "Bless Me, Father." It's really kind of autobiographical, and then um, he also sent me "Bananas and Wire Mesh," which is a book of poetry. Um, I, you know, that really that really shaped me in many ways. And at that at that point, you know, it it almost made it real. It's like, hey, like this guy that I met, you know, I you know I never really met someone in my orbit who was you know kind of like an artist or a writer and who was kind of, who was published and actually really successful in his own right. Um, and, you know, and he liked my shit. Like he liked, you know, you know, he liked, you know, I talked about, we talked about photography, we talked about film. Um, you know, he liked my ideas, you know, a lot of my treatments, my synopsis, a lot of the work that I wanted to uh, incubate. I, you know, he really helped me see the value in it. And, once I saw that value, once he opened, helped me open that third eye, mm -hmm. I, I couldn't unsee it. Mm -hmm. I couldn't unsee it. I couldn't, I, I could just, I, 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 I had to consider the arts as an option. Yeah, you can't put that back in a box once oh. it's out. Man, and, and, uh, and I mean, like, you know, even when, you know, he was down in Vintook. Um, you know, we, you know, when we went back down to Vintook, you know, we we hung out, we partied, we drank, and 
And we, you know, we, we had great fun, right? And then when I saw him towards the end, I remember going to Cape Town. I was on a, I was on a business uh, trip as well. Then I was down in Cape Town. We were starting, if you remember, the uh, GSG office. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had managed to uh, see him because I, I, I think he, he wasn't, he wasn't feeling well at the time, and um, he had actually lost his wife, mm, that's uh, his right. wife Carla. Yeah, and um, I could see just uh, there was something different. I mean, just good, cool old Mario, but there was just something different. Like he had lost that sparkle in his eye, that will, that was that will, that desire. And you know, within a couple of months, his health deteriorated, and eventually, after he passed away. I remembered thinking about what it meant to really be true to oneself and being, mm. and you know, this idea that you really only have one shot, right? We are now in a period of so much uncertainty, and so it's almost easy to you know, shoot the shit to the wind. But back then, I was still really consumed by, again, like this material science world. I mean, like, oh, I gotta, I gotta work for a corporation. I gotta, you know, gotta make sure my career doesn't have a blemish. My, make sure I got a really great LinkedIn photo. Like, you know, I was, right, exactly. I, I, I was consumed by things that I didn't think were true to my own being I suppose and I and I think Mario was always an advocate of pursuing one's true desires mm-hmm. and I ended up writing a piece after he died which was a Facebook post mm, I remember it uh, uh, but it actually turned to into my first non- fiction um short story mm-hmm. and uh you know it really it impacted me so much after reading it and also the response to the piece um it was such a powerful response i got invigorated more i think by the response and i was like and a lot of folks thought i had been writing for a while at the time and and i think it was yeah it was probably like a much needed ego boost because as an, I never really believed I was an artist. And, you know, for such a long time, again, like this idea of being an artist was so foreign to me that as an artist, I needed to hear someone validate me in a way. I really just, I needed that, right? And and that really was the energy that I took to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. I went to Vietnam and I... And that changed everything. And I had such a transformative experience. I went to a Buddhist conference in Vietnam with, you know, with, within three, four days, I had met hundreds of people, had numerous small conversations about enlightenment and life and all these grand concepts around consciousness. I, like it was difficult not to examine your own and analyze your own space and your own consciousness and your own feelings around 
contentment and happiness and even meaning. And I thought it felt like at that point, and this was May last year, just to give you a timeline. Um, at that point, I had been feeling rather comfortable in my space. But I realized that a lot of what I was doing was really meaningless. Mm, was, you felt too comfortable. I too felt too comfortable. I, I was sure we're doing great work on the ground, but I never felt really that I was showing up with with all of my intentions set and aligned. I, you know, I, in some ways, I also felt it was just like a means to an end. Mm. And, you know, like, these are my Peace Corps years. So, you know, mm. you know I just, it was just like a very idealistic thing. You know, like, as long as, you know, I'm doing good, my community also, to a certain extent, like, you know, when, when your community also starts to recognize you in a certain way, it does give you a sense of acceptance maybe even status and you start to feel okay like well i am a leader in civil society but what does that even really mean mm. what does that actually mean it was and, and and even working within civil society i felt the work was so important mm -hmm. and yet i felt i could do more <laughs> sure I well just, and it was important yeah and there's more <laughs> and there's more right like, yeah. you know absolutely and, and and in many ways um we have you know we, we had reached uh a point where the organization was functional it was uh it was funded mm -hmm. we had a great team mm -hmm. i didn't have to be there i could actually pursue my own endeavors right. and i felt like i had fulfilled my own personal goals and my obligation towards the collective because this is a very different culture from the u.s we come from a collective mm -hmm. society you know, and everyone in that collective expects you to kind of do your part and if you go off and do your own thing then you know, there is a sense of guilt sometimes like oh well you know you're kind of being selfish you know sure i'm sure sure i'm sure you can earn more money in san francisco's financial district but what about you know what about the kids in the north right like in the south for that matter um but i felt like well I, there's other ways i can contribute to that, yes. to that development and don't you also feel that one one of the ways that you can contribute is to cultivate your own gifts so that you can then share them with the world because if you don't take the time to do that are you not denying the world and in fact denying where you come from the gift of you in your in your highest expression so that that the idea of being what some people might think is i'm using air quotes here selfish mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. actually the thing that you must do i mean of course service is great it's lovely and you know we all do it and whatnot but also the service to your higher expression is vital as well and and it's, and it's such a yes first of all yes and such you, you raise such a valid point because there there has been a moment where serving my own and pursuing this I, I did feel guilty. I did feel like I was almost leaving behind 
so many relationships, opportunities, and maybe I would regret at some point if I came over um, having left it all behind. And now I realized with everything, the way it's played out and the way it's playing out, that I have to pursue this. I actually don't have any other choice. But here's also the other thing is, aren't you sort of less leaving that behind and really bringing it with you? Yeah, well, this, yeah. Well, this, and this is, and well, that's exactly the point. Like, this is who I am anyway. This is how I've always been. There is no divorce between Kavina and civil society and Kavina. And I, I, this is, I'm the same person. I'm, I'm really just, I, this is an, that's why I was saying like, this is just an extension of my own. My work is an, ex, my work as an artist is, an, is the extension of my lived experience. Mm -hmm. Th that's what forms the body of my work. Again, as an African man living in the diaspora, I'm interested in using the poetics of film to ask these questions but also to provide opportunities for the exchange of public opinion. And I can only really explain this through an example. Like, it, it, for people, like your audience that really needs to understand this. Like I grew up in Southern Africa, most Folks that I've encountered here in the US, they know the history of South Africa. But Namibia itself has its own set of segregative history. And you're quite right when you talked about the German experience. I used to go to the art gallery as a kid my mom's house, which is right downtown. And between the National Art Gallery and my mom's house was the statue of an, it's actually an equestrian statue of a German SS soldier on a horse. Um, and, at, and at the very front of the statue, um, there is this plaque. And on the plaque, um, it basically read, honoring the German soldiers who fought against uh, the Hottentot, the Herero uprising, um, between 1903, 1907. Mm -hmm. And right behind the statue is an old German fort. It's called the Alta Festa. And that's reasonably, considerably considered as the first establishment, first building in my hometown in Vintuk, the capital city of Namibia. Mm -hmm. 
but beneath that fort are the bones of the Herero and the Namas. Mm. Most people don't know that was the first, this is the site of the first concentration camp of the Second Reich. Mm. And right in front of this site is this monument, this public art structure overlooking the city, the entire city, on a hill overlooking the city, with people walking by every day, not even understanding that this is a dominant narrative that's once again squeezing out the voices of those marginalized, those who have been oppressed, those who were killed through genocide. No one is questioning that. It took years before that statue was removed, years, and there was considerable op opposition. Mm -hmm. And it's because these, dominance, these dominant narratives haven't been challenged. And that's what I aim to do with my work. Challenge the narratives and give a window onto another experience that maybe mainstream people just haven't been introduced to. And, and also, and, 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 and apart from that, just think about the moment, think about the moment. You know, we're, talking about, we're talking about Black Lives Matter, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> we talk about the value of Black life, right? Ask yourself, if you look at another genocide committed by the German by Germany, by the second, by the Third Reich, so not the Second Reich in this instance. Um, you look at the response. Um, uh, the, you know, the, there were there were active policies that were enacted, those were promulgated and enacted, um, and implemented um, to support survivors of the shore, mm -hmm. um, maybe through reparations, various, various, it's, it's, it's documented. You don't have to take my word for it. Right. But if you look at the descendants of the Herero Nama genocide, the response has been at best aggressively, it was, it was antagonistic, mm -hmm. at best antagonistic. And, um, and, and, and at, work, at worst, it's compromising. Um, so, you know, if, if, if black lives really matter, why can we no longer, why can we not consider that a genocide as well? Why can we not consider a form of reparations as well? Even if it's, even if we understand that reparations won't address the social justice issue. Right. But understand that the adverse impact of that genocide is still felt today. If you look at the communities that are most marginalized in Namibia today, go to the south of the country. Go to the east of the country. It, it, it's these, we're talking about 
tens of thousands of people that were massacred. There was an extermination order. In other words, to kill every man, woman, and child. You have to understand, if, if we're talking about black lives mattering, if we're talking about the value of black lives, we need to look at all black lives. Mm-hmm. And, and, and here in the US, that, that argument can be made equally as well. Because even that, there's an improportion, there's a, there's, there's, there isn't a proportionate way in the way we support certain members of the black community here as well. So again, like my work aims to really uplift some of these marginalized communities. And, and tell their stories. And tell their stories, their stories, absolutely. And have it be known because otherwise it's silence and people have to know about this. Right. And, and this is, this is why I find myself or I found myself frustrated and why I knew I had to pursue this path in film and contemporary art is this idea that no one else was really occupying this space. And, and, and it's not to suggest that there are no other contemporary Namibian artists, there's been a lot of wonderful artists, but historically you have um, the f- folks like John Mofangero, who um, is a Namibian, I think who's Namibia's premier contemporary artist, really one of um, the artists I've always admired. And I felt, I felt like I was often, often influenced by a lot of the artists here in the U.S. and the African American artists I was exposed to, um, even even uh, the, the folks that um, came around uh, to the continent that were touring. My dad used to uh, used to promote a lot of the uh, jazz bands um, who uh, would come from the U.S. to Namibia, and so I would spend time. Um, I wouldn't say I was a roadie, but I certainly, um, you know, would would would, would be around when uh, they were setting up sound chairs. Grab that clarinet, son. Right, <laughs> and we're picking, you know, picking them up from the airport. Um, and I and and I and I always got the sense that you know, like I was, I had a proximity to the arts that I I knew that if you leveraged your experience. And if you are honest and you set the right intentions, you know you 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 can tell a story that is unique. And I think, like with Namibia, that is probably the biggest opportunity. That there, there is this level of like relative unknownness, for lack of a, a better term. Like this idea that you know you. I mean, if I ask you how many Namibians that you know, it's probably less than three. It's one. So I know I mean, a smattering of South Africans. I know three right, of them, and right. you are my one Namibian friend. So I mean, look at those odds, right? Mm-hmm. That's quite proportionate. Oh wait, and Dilly, I I know him as well. Oh, there we go. Yeah, two, there two. Go. Yeah, two. <laughs> there we go. There we go. I'll and you know what? You know, home. Cav, uh, I have news for you. You're an artist. Ding 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 ding. <laughs> I'm validated. That's all I needed to hear. 
when you when your ex coworker tells you that you are actually an artist, you know you're an artist. Yes. Thank you so much for doing this, love. This was fantastic. Thank you, Thank you for sharing your stories with us. And it was so good to be with you today. And I had such a great conversation. Thank you for really opening up this platform. I, I'm excited for you. I can't wait to hear more. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thank you so much for joining me for that delightful and insightful talk with my old friend, Kavena Hembera. I'm so lucky that I get to talk to amazing human beings on this program. And also, the other gift is I get to share them with you. Thank you so much for helping to make Conversations From Here such a raging success. I could not do it without you, and I am so grateful for it. So thank you. Meantime, until next week, take good care, and I'll see you on the other side.